0: I'm Nigel Campbell and this is the Future Curious podcast from Nesta where we take a look into our shared future, the technologies and trends shaping it and how we can all play a part in occupying our future. So will robots soon take over the workplace and leave humans redundant and desolate? Well sometimes, I don't know about you, there are aspects of my job where I'd be quite happy to hand over to a robot, but with all forms of automation, there are pros and cons. So what could robots potentially do for us? And how do we prepare for the new ways of doing things and indeed future-proof ourselves with the skills that robots might never have? Well, joining us to discuss this is Eliza Easton, Head of Policy Unit, Creative Industries Policy and Evidence Centre from Nesta, uh, and Kate Bell, who's Head of Rights, International, Social and Economics Department at the Trade Union Congress. Very long uh, job titles, (laughs) both of you. Welcome to you.
1: (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thanks
0: for coming in. So, guys, we. are from where you see it, what are the main changes in the way that work is 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 going to evolve? How is it gathering pace uh, right now, and what's sort of driving those changes?
2: I think you can you can see the changes that are that are happening, and and you only really have to go into your local supermarket. And just five years ago, there would have been um, a friendly cashier to talk to, and now everyone is choosing to go to the self service checkout. And those fundamental changes that have happened in um, in the kind of shopping world are going to also happen across industries. Um, We've done a piece of research at Nesta which looked at the jobs that are likely to to shrink and grow as a percentage of the workforce and we find about 10% are likely to grow and 20% are likely to to shrink and and that is a really significant um, challenge. I don't know about it being all doom and gloom, though, because it doesn't necessarily mean those people have to be um, redundant and desolate, I think you said. Um, there are things that we can do now, um, both uh, us as, you know, policy um, policy wonks, uh, people in um, business and, and individual workers themselves to actually um, improve things.
1: And I think one of the really interesting things to remember in this debate is that kind of the technologies of work have always been changing and the types of job we've done have changed pretty significantly over time. So when the TEC was founded 150 years ago, um, many about half, I think, um, of the UK population was working in agriculture. Today, I think that's around less than 1%. So we've seen kind of significant change in the types of industry we do. But what kind of we're really interested in is how you shape that change and how you kind of deliver better jobs in the context of new technologies. I mean, I think one of the other kind of really interesting things, which maybe gets talked about a little bit less is how kind of technological change has driven new business models. So if you think about you talked in your introduction about kind of the kind of last wave of kind of industrial and technological logical change. And one of the things that did was kind of really um, contribute to kind of the globalisation of trade. So you saw the ability to manage supply chains over longer distances. That was all IT enabled. So some of the things which we tend to think of as kind of not really technological change often were very much enabled by technology, but they were more about how business organises itself, how kind of money is gathered, than they were actually about, you know, most of us still go to a workplace most days. Um, And I think it's interesting to think about those kind of business models as a significant element of this future of work
2: and I think in terms of the the creative industries so that's you know fashion and film but also the tech sector you're looking at about a third of people who are self-employed so so in in those instances even the idea of going into the office every day has been turned on its head and you're seeing organizations like WeWork spring up but in terms of um, the policy to make sure that those people have fundamental protections I think there's a lot we can do in um in Looking at the changing business models and making sure that policy um, and research is keeping in step with them to support those people.
0: You, you mentioned there about the numbers of jobs that are going to grow versus the ones that are going to to shrink, um, and and there are going to be all kinds of different jobs that we haven't even don't exist right now that are going to, I guess, happen in the in the, what kinds of things should we be thinking about? What kinds of jobs? can we stare into your crystal ball and see it's yeah. your kind of well, things that we, I mean not precisely but what, yeah well but hopefully area. I can do
2: even better than oh, staring into a crystal ball which is um, we've done a number of pieces of, of research there might be a bit of crystal ball gazing but also they're using things like machine learning um, trends analysis to try and understand how um, different industries will change One thing that we've we found um, which we've been trying to we've been trying to make sure people um, especially businesses, Uh, take in, is that it isn't just about digital skills. I think digital skills are often seen as the answer to to changing needs in the workforce. But actually, when we, we did a recent piece of research looking at 41 million different job adverts and trying to understand which jobs are likely to grow in the future and which are likely to shrink. And actually, those that require a digital skill are more likely to shrink than those that don't. And the reason for that is lots of jobs that at the moment don't require digital skills, things like Teachers and chefs um, uh, are actually very likely to grow in the future. We're going to need lots more of them. There's also, within the kind of digital skills that, that, that we're going to need in the future, um, there's a real difference between those in jobs which are likely to grow and those in jobs that are likely to shrink. So if you're talking about people who are being creative with technology, so people who work in animation or design, or people who are creating the, creating the um, programmes themselves, those jobs all have really buoyant prospects in the future. Um, but on the flip side of that, you might be using an enormous amount of technology technology in say um, a storage facility uh, but you've become almost a middleman between two pieces of technology and and that sort of passive use of technology is seen in jobs that are really likely to be done by robots in the future so uh, one thing that we kind of warn against is just seeing seeing learning more tech skills as the answer it's definitely more complicated than that and to do with those kind of creative
1: skills too And I think it's really important to kind of remember that a lot of the types of jobs we have will be shaped by policy and political decisions. So just before Christmas, we put out a report saying we actually think we can still have a manufacturing sector in the UK. Um, The government's been talking about industrial digitalisation. They commissioned something called the Made Smarter Review, which said at a minimum, there's nearly 200,000 new jobs just coming from the ability to kind of roboticise some of our production techniques and I think often this kind of debate gets into a bit of a you know in the future we're all going to be either kind of creators or serfs of some kind basically <laughs> but actually we are going to still be making things I mean looking around the studio you know someone is making the laptop um, you know someone is going to be making this kind of high tech sonic equipment and we think actually the potential for digitalisation means that we might be able to do more of that in the UK if we get the right support
0: and what about you know when we look at Outside the the studio window here, and we see, you know, there's uh, legions of uh, of delivery uh, people, you know, and but might they be replaced by, you know, automatic vehicles and drones and things like that? And and are the whole sections of the workforce which are going to have to expect a massive change in the way that they that they that they, they work? Perhaps. Uh, really tectonic kind of changes much like happened in the in the 80s uh, and 90s when whole industries changed like you know with with uh, you know mining change for example and all those sorts of things and and how what kind of social impacts might they have?
1: i mean i think it's such a good example of um how kind of political change is so important to thinking about the nature of industrial change we have now we knew probably we were going to move away from using kind of coal in such an intensive way but we didn't need to do it in a way that kind of abandoned whole Communities basically fail to plan for that transition and fail to put any support in place for those workers. Um, so I think it, that's where the kind of political nature of this becomes so important because it's not just a, oh, sorry, we don't have coal anymore, <laughs> um, you know. A lot of that you can see is a kind of deliberate political decision to let those communities kind of go by the wayside and let those workers down. I mean, you mentioned delivery drivers, and I think that's really interesting because that's one of the areas where we've seen business models change far more than activity, basically. So we've now got kind of a new intermediary between restaurants and consumers, which is this kind of delivery sector. Um, Many people would say, you know, does this delivery sector, you know, now kind of in order to get your food delivered, you probably have to go through Deliveroo. That's giving a lot of profits to Deliveroo. Is it making delivery that much easier? I don't know. Um, it's not that great for those delivery workers. Most of the time they haven't been, you know, Deliveroo hasn't been prepared to recognise them, to give them decent minimum wages and holiday pay. So you've seen a big kind of shift of where the money's going, which is to this kind of overarching delivery model I don't know what that's done to the takeaway market, like I genuinely don't know. It hasn't been amazing for workers, but it's it's not really the technology. It's just a kind of new way of doing business, possibly enabled, you know, by smartphone apps. And maybe they got in there with the app first. So kind of first mover advantage. But big change in the way we do work, less about what those people are actually doing. They're all riding bikes. You know, it's not like... (laughs) The most kind of technologically enabled sector.
0: Then again, a sector which maybe will be transformed again by, you know, drones or whatever.
1: Yeah, definitely, and I and
2: I think I think I agree with Kate. I think you can you can um, foresee changes, and, and, and you know that's a lot of what we try to do at Nestor, it's about thinking about what the future might look like, and therefore helping government, people, industry plan for that. Um, and there are really good examples that I've that I've heard of uh, where businesses are thinking very um, smartly about what the future of their workforce will look like, knowing um, technological change might happen. So so. Why one example, um, and I must admit it was someone from the Royal Bank of Canada who told me this. So you always have to be a bit wary. Um, but I know the Royal Bank of Canada have gotten... Uh, are The Royal Bank of Canada um, understand that either in five years or in 25 years, they're unlikely to have as many people working in branch as there are now. Um, And they don't know what the timescale on that would be. And I'd say the same thing would be true um, with uh, use of drones for delivery, for example. We really don't understand what the timescale is because technology isn't there yet. There are still fundamental issues with the technology and with the legislation that would allow us to get to that point. But what they've done is put in this long-term training Strategy to try and ensure that either people will be able to have other jobs within the bank that aren't um, working in those branches, or will be able to move to other areas that are requiring um, the same types of skills. So the example they gave was was scrum masters who are in charge of large groups of people working in um, working in technology, and actually those managerial skills that they've learned are essential to moving into that business. And it's a small um, upskilling job to get them to the point where they're able to move into a sector that that really needs a lot of the skills that they have
1: and i I was just gonna say i think there's lots of other examples like that um particularly kind of in the German manufacturing sector where they're a bit more advanced in thinking about this. And there's one of the German car manufacturers, which now I can't remember which one it is, but you know, have said basically, we will not guarantee your job suit. We will guarantee that we'll have the same number of jobs through to 2020. We can't guarantee you'll have the same job, but we do guarantee we'll put the training in place to support that transition. It's really interesting you mentioned banks, because that's one of the kind of classic examples of maybe this leads to job change, not loss, in that when um, uh, cash points basically came in in the US, they thought this would lead to a kind of massive decline in employment for kind of bank clerks, bank tellers. And actually employment in the sector went up, more people were using banks, those people were redeployed. So a really great example of how actually it doesn't have to be, you know, like the coal fills where it's like, sorry, no jobs anymore. But actually change can be managed in a kind of constructive way.
2: One question I have have for UK is uh, I suppose in the sectors I work in, the creative industries, the average business size is, is 3.3 people. And so we look at the German sector and there are definitely advantages to having those small innovative businesses in the UK, specifically in sectors like design, where German companies tend to be bigger and have their own problems related to that. Um, but there are huge challenges in terms terms of upskilling what what do you think the answer is for those type of businesses that want to plan for the future but when you're looking at them at scale you need those major upskilling programs but when you're looking at them individually it's harder to envisage how that might happen
1: well, I think there's some really interesting stuff that has actually been done by unions who tend to represent kind of freelance workers. And um, one of my favorites is like the example of the musicians' union, who, you know, always talk about themselves as the original gig economy. Um, but, you know, they have invested in training for their members, basically. So they're able to provide a, a more collective level. Um, they actually will negotiate with those freelance people, for example, with orchestras. Um, so to get kind of decent terms and conditions in for orchestras. So some kind of really kind of interesting examples where, where the people who are um, the people who are working may be employed as individuals. But the organisations who are buying their work are normally larger. And I'd imagine, I don't know the design sector well at all, but I'd imagine that's normally the case with the design sector as well. So thinking about how they can kind of collectivise in some ways to deal with those kind of large purchasers of their services has been one of the really interesting ways I think actually trade unions have innovated in that way and might have some lessons for how we deal with this in other sectors too.
0: That's a really interesting point actually because in previous industrial revolutions we've you know movements have sprung up, haven't they, from sort of the social impacts that have been brought on by them, from you know unions, cooperatives, those sorts of things. Uh, are they still relevant? Do you think, can you foresee new models like that emerging from what's happening right, right now and in the future?
2: I think definitely. I suppose one thing again I'd, I'd put to, to put to Kate is around um, around union membership because it often feels like with more people working freelance um, and and potentially uh, limits on their rights when they're doing that, there's a greater need for representation and collective bargaining. But that hasn't been, in terms of the numbers, what we've seen. And, and I suppose I don't know if I if I've solved that puzzle. But 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 what do you think is the answer to either why that's why that's not happened or what would mean people saw the benefit of that sort of collective?
1: I mean I think there's sort of three things. I think we think they're basic principle of trade unions which joining together collectively you can achieve more than you can on your own and dealing with that fundamental power imbalance between employers and workers we're always going to need a f- collective form of action and that's basically what trade unions are so just to get to that first point we definitely think yeah. there'll be a need for us in terms of how we make ourselves kind of relevant to today and address that decline in membership it's worth saying it's stabilized last year yeah. um, which isn't you know great <laughs> hooray stabilization we want to see growth we desperately need growth. I guess there's kind of three things I think need to happen. One is policy change. Again we had a trade union act in 2016 which significantly restricted the ability of trade unions to organise and we have to remember these things happen in a political context but we also of course need to be looking at kind of our own structures and how we kind of, how we organise and one of the things the TUC's been doing is actually through an innovation programme looking at how we reach out to young workers, looking at the way we talk to them um, looking at the way we Um, engage with them looking at what the offer actually is and that's a programme that's being kind of piloted we hope to run some more pilots over the summer and we are actually taking a kind of test and learn approach actually because we, you know, we know what people well we think we know what people kind of, the benefits of trade unionism in terms of that kind of collective representation but we don't necessarily know how to reach everybody so that's something we're thinking hard about and then I suppose kind of the third thing which I think we need to think about is What's the kind of language we use around kind of collectivism now? You know, you and I can talk about collective bargaining. We know what it is. I'm not sure everyone else does. And I think one of the things we at the TUC want to do over the course of this year is think, how do we make sure just even... You know there's the kind of legislative piece, then there's the what we do on the ground. but then what's our kind of com strategy even for so just when we talk about this, people know what we're going on about?
0: And I guess the same technologies which are fueling the the atomization of work and people working individually on their own in their front room or whatever, and the gig economy could also, be purposed to collect people together to bargain and, and and do that you know and act as a union even if they might be quite individuals
2: and i always find it interesting that a lot of our our the work we've done has looked at kind of where uh, digital and creative industries, these fast growing sectors are based. And so much of their work happens online. But actually they happen in these huge um, regional clusters. They're actually really based in physical presence, in being near people in being able to talk to people. So the idea that people are totally atomized, especially if they're working freelance, it's almost the opposite. If you have a business, there's almost more flexibility um, to be away from the kind of hub whereas if you're on your own you really need access to that wider community and that becomes um, even more important I think.
1: And I think that's such an interesting thing about how work is changing or not changing like I think there's kind of maybe even Nesta publications from kind of 20 years ago about kind of you know weightless worlds and how no one will work in an office Mm. anymore but you know lots of my colleagues work from home frequently but most people actually want to come into the office to see other people basically you know I think kind of what we want out of employment doesn't change as quickly as maybe some of the technology to
0: enable it. Okay, well, speaking of changes that are being made to the workplace right now, Humu is a Californian startup created by three ex-employees of Google. And their big idea is to use AI to nudge people into being happier at work. Earlier, I spoke to Megan Cassidy from Humu.
3: For so many people, work is just a way to collect a paycheck. And so The big question is, is what would life be like if we could make work better? Um, And an understanding that technology has gotten to a place that using this unique combination of behavioral science with applied technology, we could actually start to improve the experience of work uh, for everyone. So our CEO, Laszlo, comes from Google, where for more than a decade, he was leading the company's people operations team. During that time, it was rated the best place to work in the world a number of times. Um, And they spent a lot of energy and put a lot of time into experiments, into the experience of work for Google employees, and this idea of creating feedback loops and improving the experience and opportunities for Google employees. Um, And so the inception of Humu is how can we take everything that was learned at Google uh, and out in the field and build products and solutions that help the broader workforce? So, for example, and let me start by saying that every organization and every team is different, but, for an example if there's an organization that we know is scoring low on transparency and decision making, so for in other words, employees don't feel like they have great insight into how decisions that impact them are getting made, we nudge everyone within the organization to address this issue differently. So managers who have teams who are facing this challenge are nudged around things like sharing their own pers- personal decision making what are the criteria that they're using to make decisions and and how do they think through pros and cons, but also around over-communicating corporate rationale for their teams. So we know a recent benefits policy changed. Let me tell you what the company was thinking about and why they made the decision that they did. Um, But these same managers are also nudged around behaviors, like simply telling their team that they are the conduit for raising concerns up the management chain. So in other words, literally going in front of their teams and saying, do you have questions? Because I'm committed to getting answers. And these behaviors can sort of change the perception of we're all in it together. But simultaneously, since we think it's just as important for individual contributors to do their part, employees on teams who struggle with transparency are nudged around better communication tactics. So, HUMU at the outset ingests a pretty large amount of data. And this is everything from HRIS data, so management chain information of who reports to who within an organization, any productivity data that our partners share with us, and then the responses to a very short diagnostic that every employee within an organization takes about five minutes and they answer questions around their experience of work. So then using all of that information, our machine learning models are able to identify for every team and every organization, and this is unique to everyone, what are the behaviors that need to change that if acted upon will have the highest impact on employee happiness. And then we nudge them towards that behavior. Um, And so for every organization that we work with, this is entirely unique because everyone is facing different challenges and employees care about different things in different places. But we built a system that is incredibly flexible and that works not just in white collar workforces, but across retail, uh, workplaces like call centers, and we're always looking to diversify the kinds of partners so that we can test the boundaries of what we've built and make sure that we're building a system that actually has good chances of improving the experience of work for everyone everywhere, and not just in one particular workplace or another. So one of the things that we hear is that technology like Humus could be used to push workers too hard towards the interest of productivity. Uh, and some from our perspective, There's no risk of that with HUMU because at HUMU, our primary focus is happiness. The academic literature around the benefits of happiness in the workplace, of course, is super rich, as your listeners know. Um, And at HUMU, we prioritize helping companies to take action on the behaviors that we know will lead to outcomes that they care about, things like productivity and retention and innovation. Um, But after a massive undertaking by our people science team of decades of research, happiness is the key to those things. So what's good for employees also happens to be good for business, and that's great for us. So when we talk about happiness at HUMO and employee happiness at HUMO, we're not talking about like happy, happy, joy, joy, bouncing off the walls, skipping down the halls kind of happiness. We define happy employees as people who experience positive emotions at work, who recognize and will say out loud that their workplace is a great place to work, and who feel immersed in and passionate about the work that they do. And- I can only speak for myself when I say that those are things that I want to feel, and it is in my interest to get there. So, for our team, we definitely see ourselves as putting employees first.
0: Well, that's a very interesting example of a company changing work culture through behavioral nudges. Well, let's talk about the workplace and the changing nature of the workplace in itself, because uh, yeah, we've seen the rise of these uh, these hubs where people just can hire a space for a day or a half a day. Um, They probably have very different rules of engagement from a, a workplace that you uh, of an employer that you would go to but um, similarly you know new technologies are surveilling people who are at work you know there's keystroke monitoring and you know all kinds of cameras and things like that and you know I mean we hear these scary stories of you know certain uh, online fulfillment warehouses where you know your every movement is kind of timed and those sorts of things what are your thoughts on on how that's moving uh, and uh, and evolving.
1: So I guess kind of let me take that specifically that question about surveillance because it's something we did a big piece of work on last year because I think sometimes all this kind of future of work stuff gets lumped together basically and we have this we never talk about work but we talk about the future of work as if it's kind of one topic basically as opposed to many so but we wanted to really kind of drill into that question and what is how with new technologies being able to being used to surveil workers at work so we had a kind of large-scale survey we had some focus groups um, with workers across the country and we found surveillance was pretty widespread so half of people think they're under some surveillance at work and most of that was more traditional forms so that might be CCTV um, it might be using access cards which um, in some places particularly call centres we were being found we were finding was being used to monitor how long people spend in the loo, for example, some pretty shocking, undignified stuff. Um, Or it might be kind of email monitoring. But we did also find that workers were telling us that there was kind of the use of new technologies for surveillance too. So we found a quarter of people thought there was some kind of location monitoring, whether that's wearables or whether in your logistics job and, you know, your truck is monitored where you go. Um, And then one in seven actually said they thought facial recognition software was used in their company. Now, that seems really high but that's what people were telling us so Mm. that's either a sign that it's happening in companies or definitely that people think it's coming down the track basically and it was very interesting talking in the focus groups about how people were often uncomfortable about this but didn't know what they could do to stop it and we're kind of saying things like oh well you know they'll just be monitoring our every blink before we know it but a bit of a kind of sense of fatalism about where, what they could do to actually tackle that kind of sense of in, increased intrusion into their work life
2: yeah I mean that's pretty that's pretty that's pretty shocking and I suppose looking at it from a long historical point of view you can see there have been ups and downs in terms of levels of surveillance it's not just a, it's not necessarily technology can obviously enable um, new kinds of surveillance but if, just thinking you know Victorian uh, cotton mills people walking around making sure you don't leave there have been much higher levels of surveillance before and what's important is that people realize that there are things that can be done it doesn't have to be as you say kind of a train with 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 no stop
1: button and i think it's like a really interesting thing is just thinking about the kind of in a way the kind of business models and kind of management philosophy that goes behind that basically so you've got kind of one concept of work which Lots of us, probably all of us in this room, are privileged to work in a situation where you have a set of kind of goals, objectives. You're given some flexibility about how you best meet them, basically. There's, of course, you know, accountability for how you do that. But you have some kind of idea about how you get the job done. Then you've got this kind of different conception where work's increasingly broken down into a small series of tasks and you can see that even with things like Task TaskRabbit and then there's a very kind of sophisticated technology put in place to see did you do that task and how well did you do it so no sense of autonomy no sense of kind of craft or skill just a, I've managed to break this down into the smallest possible chunk I can possibly pay you for and then I've the way I've made sure you did it, it's not by motivating you, not by kind of managing you, not by thinking, how can I make this, you know, a fulfilling and rewarding part of work? It's by sticking a camera on you and checking whether you've done it. And I think that's the kind of business model management philosophy that I think is really worrying. And probably that kind of attitude is more significant than the technology itself.
2: And, and I'm not sure how how productive that helps people be anyway. I'm not sure whether, you know, that is the ultimate in productivity either. I was thinking about, um, I think it was Ford uh, who introduced or really pushed for the first five-day week as opposed to six-day week. And he did it basically purely because of um, reasons of productivity. Actually, he thought his staff would be more productive if um, they worked five days. Uh, but the idea that you just get people to work as much as possible in order to get the most out of them has been disproved for so long that that returning to that um, seems, seems a bad idea.
0: And of course, demographics also come into play here because, you know, increasingly, um, you know, if we, we have limits on uh, how many people uh, migrant workers can come in to do certain levels of, of jobs. If, if the, we have to rethink all of that model, then it might be more valuable for employers to invest more in retain, retention of employees, and therefore, you know, may, that can change the whole dynamic between a, an Absolutely. employer. Absolutely,
1: and, and I mean, you know, I've been a bit gloomy about the, this stuff, but I think there's great examples actually of technology helping to make work better. Um, I. Visited a distribution centre recently for a major retailer, um, and they worked really hard with the union to introduce new technology, which made it was meant it was safer, um, it was better kind of for their health. Um, they were able to pick faster. Basically, it's kind of sending goods out to. Shops basically, or online shopping, um, and they'd consulted with the union to really put that in place. So it was sort of a win win situation, you know, it was more productive, but it was also a more pleasant place to work because it was less kind of back breaking, heavy lifting. And what one of the really interesting things they'd done was also said, We think this is the kind of average amount you can do today in terms of lifting, um, you do that how you want basically take your breaks when you want them um you know if you finish a bit early and you know if it's bad one day but you catch up the next we're not going to be massively on your backs. so they'd kind of use the new technology the better you know the better systems to deliver that increased productivity increased autonomy for the workforce and really a win-win and that's why i think you know before i sound too kind of what was it bleak did you say I think desolate. desolate that was the word I <laughs> sound too desolate in, you know January 2019 yeah. we think there's like a really positive future of work and you're talking about working time you know one of the things the TEC's put on the table is this idea that if we do become more productive maybe we could work fewer hours and you know yeah. we fought for the five-day well, week
2: I mean the, you know the, the other way around is true as well maybe if we worked fewer hours we'd be more productive
1: absolutely so you know there's we should kind of inject a note of optimism back into this conversation. We always like that. There is podcast. a lot to be optimistic <laughs> about. We're not Anything all doom
2: advocating <laughs> for a four-day week. We're not <laughs> all doom and gloom here.
0: So, uh, I suppose the other aspect of it is how do we prepare our young people to enter the world of the future world of work? Because. Um, you know, we've got a, a, an education system which is still geared towards um, a, a, a kind of old model of work or a, certainly a conventional model of work and not necessarily what's going to happen when they they, they, they go uh, into the world of work in 10 years' time. So um, what, what, what are our thoughts on that? I know we're not educational es- experts here, but what are some of the principles that we should be starting to look at in our systems of preparing us for work?
2: So, So I think... I think um, for example there, there are a few different areas that, that we've we've thought about at Nesta um, and, and one of those would be uh, for example um, digital technologies making sure that in schools it's not about IT where you just learn how to use a piece of software but it's really about being creative in terms of computer science and that move from IT to computer science is quite is quite a fundamental one in terms of preparing people for for the future for the future economy um, and then there's also questions around things like Um, careers advice where I don't know what other people's careers advice were like but mine was filling in I think a um, multiple choice question and and i think i got offered musician secretary volcanologist as the three <laughs> options that came out at the always, end always
0: always sit together those two. yeah
2: exactly <laughs> and i finally found the perfect role between them all so, um, be lots but, of, there's but, so but, many people nodding to this yeah. now I <laughs> but i think but i think also um beyond kind of better better uh were um better careers advice in general we can actually use some of the new technologies to help people to understand what jobs are out there so one thing that we've been working on is is a a skills taxonomy which really shows us how skills are clustered in the UK economy but it does it using job adverts so we've put together um, skills that naturally cluster in different job adverts um, and we've organized them like that and what that allows us to do is throw away um, the preconceptions say of the teacher who is um, giving careers advice and actually build something that's based on the economy as it is. Because beyond my ABC, um, my multiple choice career advice, I think the only other advice I had was from teachers who mostly had experience of being teachers. The other thing which isn't really about young people, but, but, but does concern me and I don't have the answers to, is around um, retraining. And we've done a few interviews um, talking to people who are in jobs that are very, very likely to be automated in the almost immediate future and actually convincing those people that either A, their job will be automated and B, um, that they need to retrain and what that retraining might be. It is quite difficult. And and I suppose there are all kinds of, of reasons for that, including you know funding and people don't have time. And also, it's very difficult to work out whether your job's going to be automated or not and someone coming in from a completely different organisation and telling you that might not elicit the most um, kind of uh, happy response but I suppose I just wanted to kind of throw that question out there because because I think a lot of the challenges are not just going to be with, with young people that's a kind of ongoing challenge where the economy is always changing but actually in terms of retraining there's such a big opportunity um, that, that it's just about thinking about how that happens best.
1: And I think one of actually the areas where we should give government a little bit of credit is it has started thinking about this. Mm. So they've set up something called the National Retraining Partnership, which is a kind of social partnership approach. So it's got um, the government, the TUC and the CBI, so kind of business, government and workers working together, starting to think about piloting. How do you make that approach and how do you target it? And I think there's really interesting questions about do you target those who are at risk of seeing their skills change? Mm. Or do you target the expanding industries? But I think the thing we think we as trade unionists can offer and trade unions have a long record of being involved in skills training and we run something called Union Learn is actually being in the workplace and hopefully being a kind of credible voice which can make this seem like something that is valuable and also have a role in making sure that the training genuinely is valuable so it's not just seen as you know the UK doesn't have a brilliant record of vocational training not just seen as kind of another retraining course and actually seen as something genuinely useful which might help you transition into a new job not just kind of cushion the pain of the possible risk of losing your old one.
2: And, and I think, again, there are just, you know, you start thinking about exciting ways that, that new modes of data, new types of technology could be used to actually help people to do that. So, for example, it's possible to see using um, job adverts, how much a single skill or a couple of extra skills using your CV might be able to add to your salary. And those kind of things could potentially be real incentives for individuals. And, uh, you know, a, a few years ago, it would have been impossible to understand the kind of complexity of... Of the labour market at that detail but partly because of online job adverts we actually have a lot of that data out in the open now in in single in a single place
1: but I think there is a I think it's really exciting some of those possibilities but I think we have got to recognise that government is going to need to invest seriously in this. Yeah. like the UK already compared to most advanced economies hardly spends anything on workplace training and it's been falling over the past decade people are going to need need the support to do this and i think you know you might lose your job in five years so invest in some training now is not a great sell <laughs> government will help you develop your skills and there's a bit of funding available to help you do that it's mm. probably a bit of a better one and something that you know would be enhancing our productivity now which of course we know we desperately need
0: so given uh, that we are hoping to be optimistic about the opportunities of the future there's some things that we really need to be putting in place now that's the investment uh, structures I guess um, and uh, and also working on that the psychology I guess of of our relationship with work and our openness to learning new skills uh, and, and and giving ourselves more opportunities and resilience
2: and I and I put in another kind of word on, on the on the freelancers on on self employed people because I think there are so many different structures of of self employment and at the moment policy just doesn't represent that in terms of how those people are protected. We're looking at a new immigration system, um, and when you're looking at, you know, around a third of the industries that I'm talking about are self employed and there's no real system for people coming into the country apart from freedom of movement or if you've won a BAFTA, um, <laughs> if you're self-employed, then I, I think there are um, there are fundamental policy cha- challenges in just representing the economy as it is now, um, as well as obviously looking to kind of uh, looking to the economy of the future.
0: So a f- final piece of advice then from you guys. Um, uh, uh, earlier in 2018 um i was lucky enough to become uh, an uncle uh and my little nephew Maverick is now 9 years uh, 9 months old <laughs> nine um, so, yeah Folkura. he's age, age, age rapid <laughs> yeah <laughs> So he's nine months nine months old. Um, what would your advice be to the growing Maverick uh, to prepare him for a, a, a world that's going to be very different from the one that you and I know when he's in oh, you know eighteen years' say, time?
1: Uh, Maverick needs to join a trade union. <laughs>
2: Good
0: one. <laughs> How about you, Eliza? What do you think? Um,
2: I think uh, making sure that Maverick. Um, oh, God, what would I <laughs> what would I advise nine month old Maverick? I would say to Maverick um, not to necessarily focus exclusively on you know, building enormous amounts of knowledge, but also to be as creative and open-minded as possible and um, really look for opportunities in, in what might be a very exciting new labour market.
0: Thanks for listening to Future Curious. If you liked what you heard, please do share the podcast and rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us grow our audience. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or visit nestor.org.uk forward slash futurecurious to find out more and check out the other episodes in the series. Thank you and stay curious. Future Curious is a Chalk and Blade production. The producers were Ruth Barnes, Laura Sheeter, and Lily Ames. Original music is by Jed Flood.